Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 53 with Carolyn Crow. I was laid off completely unexpectedly and it was a huge wake-up call. I, I had thought to myself like, okay, I've got this nice little desk job and the money is good and you know, the schedule's okay for my family. So like, this is fine for now. I wasn't really happy, but I mean, I did it because that's what I thought I was supposed to be spending my time doing, but it was really a wake-up call of like, oh, work doesn't love me and they don't care if I'm there or not. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we have Chef Carolyn Crow. Carolyn is the owner of Black Bunny Bakery, as well as an event planner for the city of Gaithersburg, Maryland. We discuss how she's been juggling event planning, programming cooking classes for Gaithersburg's Casey Community Center, preparing baked goods for Black Bunny Bakery, and her new series of online cooking demos. We also talk about favorite desserts, baking resources, Department of Health regulations, and if food should always be delicious. Thanks to this week's sponsors. Tyler Wright, Danny Spletter, Ron Krieger, Cafe Bueno, Little Fig Bake Shop, Maryland Bakes, and the Savory Spoon Catering Company. If you want to support the show, our Venmo name is C-H-E-F-W-O-R-E-S-T-O-S. If you enjoy the show, have ever received a job through one of our referrals, have been a guest, been given complimentary Chefs Without Restaurants swag, or simply want to help, it would be much appreciated. Feel free to let us know if you have any questions. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. All right, welcome everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today we have Chef Carolyn Crow. She is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, and she spent some time working at the famed Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley before returning to her hometown right outside Washington, D.C., After years working as a pastry chef and chocolatier in the D.C. area, Carolyn left the kitchen for the comfort of a desk job and the simple satisfaction of being the mom who makes the best birthday cakes. Working in marketing and event planning for a national gourmet distributor, she developed live and pre-recorded pastry demonstrations for professional chefs and passionate amateurs alike, including chocolate tastings, molecular gastronomy decorations, cake decorating classes, and more. And in 2018, Carolyn joined the city of Gaithersburg government as an event planner for regional events drawing 20 to 30,000 people from all over the area. 2018 also brought the launch of Carolyn's farmer's market cottage food business, Black Bunny Bakery. Now Carolyn finds herself juggling event planning, programming cooking classes for Gaithersburg's Casey Community Center, pop-up farmer's market appearances for Black Bunny Bakery, and a new series of online cooking demos. And she's still the mom that makes the best birthday cakes. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm so excited. Yeah, that's that's a lot. You've done a lot of different things, but so much within the food world, right? Yes, it's been a long and winding road, and I, I still feel like I'm just getting started in a lot of ways. So uh, definitely a diverse background, but I think every little bit has made a difference and, and brought me to where I am today. So did you always want to be in food? I mean, I know you went to the Culinary Institute of America. 
Is this something that you had inside you from the time you were a little child? I, I think it was. Um, I remember I, I always loved dining out. I loved going to restaurants, getting the big New York strip and the, the chocolate mousse parfait. And I just loved eating. And I realized if I wanted to eat food the way I liked it prepared, I had to prepare it myself. Um, I do remember being in fifth grade and I was assigned a project to create a how-to video. It could be on anything we wanted it to be. So I decided to make chocolate mousse parfait for my whole fifth grade class. So I had my mom record the video and I made the chocolate mousse and brought it in and shared it with everybody and just seeing how much everybody loved having that chocolate mousse in the middle of the day in fifth grade. It sort of clicked with me of like, oh people like this. I, I should do more of this. So it's, it's definitely an instinct of being a people pleaser. I've also always really enjoyed the performative aspect of it. I was a big theater nerd in high school. And I really think that when you present somebody with a plate of food, it's like saying, I made this for you. It's the best I can do. This is the little show I'm putting on for you today. What do you think? Clap for me now, please. So that side of it really appeals to me too. So that's definitely the art side of culinary arts. And this gets to be a hotly debated topic of, you know, why people eat and people eat for a number of different reasons, but there's obviously sustenance. You know, I had a turkey sandwich for lunch today. It wasn't special at all. Um, but then there's the dining out and it's for, you know, that's your opportunity to try something different, hopefully. And I think you can get really creative. And I've even said, and somewhat controversially that, I don't even think food always has to be delicious. I mean, it mm -hmm. should be. But sometimes there's some interesting stuff. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where there's a chef doing something really interesting and it makes you think about it. I almost would rather have one of those dishes that I didn't love but thought about and remembered for months than just like a disposable, you know, steak that I forget and couldn't remember in a couple of months. Maybe that's a crazy idea. No, absolutely. This is actually a concept that I spend like a ridiculous amount of time thinking of. I actually end up on the other side of that coin. I would prefer to have food that is delicious and really makes me feel comforted as opposed to something that necessarily pushes the limits of the culinary arts. But I 100% know how much those innovators are important in our field. Um, is it Noma in Denmark where they're doing all of those incredible uh, foraged meals? I, I think that they are really pushing the art form to the next level. Jose Andreas has done an amazing job at so many things, obviously, but of just normalizing uh, molecular gastronomy and, and making it a part of the mainstream in, in every kitchen around the country now. People are doing molecular gastronomy, and I think Jose Andreas had a lot to do with that. But for me, and my family knows I say this all the time, I still need it to be yummy. I want that yumminess. If I could have a theater nerd moment for just a second, I always compare it to Stephen Sondheim, Sunday in the Park with George. It's a musical that's about creating art and creating art that isn't necessarily appealing to everyone. It's different. People don't understand it, but it pushes the medium in a way that it needs to happen for the whole art form to move forward. That's what George Seurat did. That's what Stephen Sondheim did with Sunday in the Park with George. And I love seeing chefs doing that. 
I would just rather have a steak at the end of the day. And I think on my last podcast, I said, you know, I would rather have tacos, really awesome pizza, barbecue. I mean, that's the food I go back to. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm a movie nerd. And there's some movies that I really hate, but they resonate with you and make you think. So there's like part of that with me too. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Mother that came out a couple of years ago. I specifically did not. I hated, I hated that movie with all of my core. Like, I wanted to shut it off like 10 times throughout, right? And I'm sure you've seen some of the reviews. But there is something that, I still remember that movie. It's ingrained in me. You go back and think about it like, I don't know, should I watch it again? Compared to like some disposable, stupid Will Ferrell comedy that like entertained you for, you know, 90 minutes. The same with food. I mean, while I always want delicious food, it is interesting sometimes to have a dish that kind of challenges your perceptions of things. So I like to have a balance of something that's going to push it a little bit, but I also don't want to go spend $300 on a dinner that I didn't think was tasty. So, Oh, for sure. There's nothing more disappointing. I I think for me, the pinnacle of finding that balance was um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. I went there for my like six month wedding anniversary or something. So this was like a decade ago at this point. But for me, they found the perfect balance of pushing the art form and making something that would make you think and be beautiful on the plate, but also be so delicious. And I think Dan Barber is obviously doing incredible things for the food industry as a whole. Um, But that meal is still the one that I keep going back to in my head of like that. They nailed it there. I would love to go there. That's on my bucket list. It was incredible. And I like I guess interesting food. Okay, so not that I don't want to taste good, but some of my signature dishes are things like scrapple dip or mm. pepperoni spread. They're actually things that when people try them, they love, but they not, they're they not going to order them on a menu. When I send a proposed menu to a customer, you know, this uh, coming weekend, I'm doing a dinner and they want filet mignon with chimichurri and they want, you know, roasted potatoes with rosemary and garlic. And, you know, it's fine. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't challenge me. It's not particularly interesting to me at all. It pays the bills. Yeah. Um, but that's where I build a little leeway into my menu for like chef's choice. So that's where mm. um, we're doing a charcuterie and cheese platter. So I'll bring some of my smoked Gouda pimento cheese. I'll bring some of my pepperoni spread and put that out there. So the people who are maybe willing to take a risk will try it. I'm not bringing something that won't taste good. Mm -hmm. But when they look at the menu, these are not people who are going to order those off the selection. So Mm -hmm. finding that balance of of creativity um, to do kind of what you want a little bit, but also serving food that's delicious, I think is the balance I'm always looking for. Absolutely. So what is your favorite thing to make? I know that might be a little like picking a favorite child, but do you have something you love? I mean, chocolate anything chocolate really i was a chocolatier for about 4 years at a little boutique in in clarendon virginia and it's my favorite thing to eat it's my favorite thing to make i love doing chocolate work so you know whether i'm doing bonbons at home or really just anything with chocolate i know it's an incredibly boring answer but I, there's so much there and it really has both you you got to know the science. If you don't know the science, your your chocolate work is going to fail. You can't just make it pretty. But if you do follow the rules and know the science, you are going to end up with an inherently beautiful product. And bread is exactly the same way. Chocolate and bread, you have to get the science down, but then it's going to be gorgeous when it's done. Sweets are so technical that way. Yesterday, we wanted to make caramel popcorn at home. 
So my wife popped up some popcorn. She started making the caramel and, you know, the instructions say, take it to 300 degrees. Well, I grabbed my digital thermometer and realized it only went to 232, you know, and it's just like bubbling away. I'm like, I don't know. So it was by eye uh, and we didn't take it high enough. We poured it on. It was just still like kind of a soft caramel. It was delicious, but it did, it wasn't the hard crack stage. And it's just one of those things where you can't fake it. You have to take it to that temperature or you're not going to get what you want. Absolutely. And there's definitely an inherent difference between savory chefs and pastry chefs. Pastry chefs, we love following the rules. We like seeing a recipe, a set of directions and saying, I know that this is going to get me where I need to go. We used to say in culinary school that the culinary students would just like to throw everything into a pot. And if it doesn't work, you cover it with a sauce. But we like getting out the scale and making sure everything is just so. I'm a big fan of the scale now, though. And I've started putting my recipes in grams. You know, I tell everyone, buy a digital scale. People will buy seven new weird ingredients for a recipe Mm -hmm. they've never made before, but they refuse to spend $20 on a digital scale. And I don't understand it. You know, during quarantine, I was doing a lot of baking and I started putting out my recipes and they were all in grams. And I had a number of people message me and say, can you convert this? I said, no, I have no idea what 280 grams of kimchi brine is. Just get a scale and weigh it out, unfortunately. Well, do you know there's a recipe website that I use for that? It's called convertme.com, convert hyphen me. And you can just pick from the drop down menu and you say, okay, I want to translate honey. And then it, you put in, I've got 10 grams of honey. What is that equivalent to? So I use that all the time. I, they probably don't have kimchi brine on there, but you could pick something that's a comparable viscosity. Yeah, it would be close to like water essentially. Right, I'm sure. right. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm going to put that in the show notes because I haven't used that. I know there are some online converters, but I still think everyone needs a scale, right? I agree a hundred percent. And it's so hard for me to not talk about it all the time. I mean, people don't want to hear about it. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I get it. A scale. Great. They, they can't comprehend how much better their baking life will be if they just get the dumb scale. And I think the rise of the international cookbooks, when you see guys like Renee Redzepi, when you buy the Noma cookbook, you know, all of those recipes have grams. They might have, um, you know, volumetric cups and, and such, but I think every one of those cookbooks is going to be having grams. And now you're seeing a lot in the U.S. too that chefs are putting both of those, not just pastry chefs, but savory chefs as well. So it's an interesting movement. Yeah, it, what a relief too. I mean, anytime I see a recipe that doesn't have weights, I say, well, this isn't for me, clearly. They did not make this one for me. It's been fun teaching myself uh, desserts because I do all my own desserts for my customers, which was really scary when I started. And it's even scarier when someone asks for something because I've put together a dessert menu of things I'm comfortable with. And then someone will say, but my wife's favorite is key lime pie. Can you do it for our anniversary? And it's like, <laughs> you know, I'm a chef. I'm sure I can look at some recipes and figure it out, but I never want my customers to be the test subjects. So, yeah. you know, do I make one at home ahead of time? How do I figure this out? But yeah, I mean, I can see how it would be daunting. And and I felt the, that way about savory cooking for a long time, too. Like, oh, that's not my area of expertise. I don't really know. You do three weeks of savory cooking when you go to the pastry program at CIA. But even with that, I was like, eh, I don't know. That's not my thing. It's actually taken a lot of repetition from my husband being like, no, you actually know what you're doing here. Like, you you are a good cook. You've studied this. So just suck it up and do it. Yeah, most of the skills translate back back and forth. I took two pastry classes in four years of culinary school. So similarly, they're mm-hmm. they're nine day classes. I had eighteen days 
of bread and pastry and desserts in four years of school, which sounds crazy. Well, but now you're doing it as your business. And of course, experiential learning is the most valuable. Most definitely. So are you still doing the farmer's markets right now? What's the season looking like for that? So the market that I usually do, the Kentland's Main Street Farmer's Market, they actually stayed shut down. Um, They decided, the city of Gaithersburg decided that it wasn't worth the risk of having people coming and mingling at the market. So they're actually just reopening this week. The Casey Farmer's Market is going to open July 9th, and then the Kentland's Farmer's Market is going to open, I don't know, whatever, two days later is July 11th. So... I haven't had my market available to go to. I've been doing some um, internet orders or or just like people are DMing me with orders on Instagram. Um, I participated in the Bakers Against Racism bake sale. So that was great. But no, I haven't been doing the farmer's market at all. With the Kentland's farmer's market opening up again, I sort of have to decide, okay, am I going to dive back into it? Or am I just going to keep taking 2020 as a moment to like, regroup, figure out what am I doing? I've only been doing the farmer's market since 2018. And so far, my goal has just been breaking even, you know, (laughs) like not being in the hole at the end of the year. And I accomplished that last year. And I thought, okay, 2020, this is it. This is my year. I'm going to really hit the ground running. Maybe I'm going to get my business license and start working out of a commercial kitchen and like really be a big kid at the farmer's market. And then of course, you know, 2020 happened. So uh, I, for right now, am not at the market. I'm not on the schedule for the season at the moment. Maybe that will change later in the year. Maybe I'll just keep doing some pop-ups and internet sales, things like that. Um, Right now, I'm mostly focusing on developing some Zoom cooking classes, and I've been recording a lot of uh, virtual programming for the Casey Community Center, so just filming cooking demos at my home. Um, This week, I have a Facebook Live bake-along with chocolate chip cookies that I'm pretty excited about, so... I guess right now I'm focusing more on developing the media side of things. I did a lot of that too. You know, I wasn't doing dinners for almost three months. So it gave me a lot of time to work on some of that stuff. And I've talked to a number of guests about the virtual learning. I mean, it sounds like you already had some experience in kind of doing cooking videos and so forth. So was that an easy transition for you? Yeah, I I would think so. I mean, I I was sort of able to just open up my laptop and kind of on a whim, I was making butter chicken for dinner one night. And I was like, I'm just going to record this and see what happens. And, and so far it's been great. I mean, I've been teaching myself how to edit the videos. um, So that's been really great. I did feel like I was a little bit ahead of the curve just because what I had done previously was mostly B2C uh, business to consumer trying to sell the uh, gourmet distributor was doing like blue apron for dessert. So I I made some cooking videos for that. And then we did some uh, chef instructor videos for professional pastry chefs. So I I definitely got some experience there. But I mean, you know, it's a brave new world. Nobody really knows what they're doing right now. I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. But honestly, I, I felt kind of daunted by my low tech situation at my house, I I didn't want to have bad lighting and bad sound and put something out there that wouldn't be up to a certain technical standard. Um, But once I saw that everybody else was literally just 
throwing up there, whatever they could put together. I was like, well, shoot, why can't I do it too? Because of my own marketing, you know, a couple of years ago, I wanted to have some videos done and some photos and I started pricing it out. And, you know, I respect your time and if you're a photographer or videographer, but when you're getting like a $5,000 quote to do some of this stuff, I just started looking on Amazon. I'm like, well, if I buy some box lights, if I buy some, you know, backdrops, uh, buy some microphones, you know, I'm into it for like $400 at the Mm -hmm. most and then just teach myself. So for the videos for my business, I started by just putting lights up in my kitchen and I had all that. And then now with the podcasting, I have better microphones. I upgraded my webcam because I'm Mm -hmm. doing the Zoom and I'm going to have a full multimedia studio in my house before I know it. So what are you using for lighting? Because that's the piece of the puzzle that I feel like I'm still missing. So I have like box lights. So they're really, I actually have one on right now and it's a little harsh because my table is up against the wall and ideally it would be on the other side lighting the front of my face and not Mm -hmm. the side. But for my videos, they're just uh, two lights that are on like little tripods and they, um, you can adjust them and shoot it all around. And I don't know, they're like 50, $60 maybe at most. Uh, and they and they set up in about five minutes. Yeah, I was definitely looking into something like that. I just feel a little intimidated by, you know, do you do the ring light, the box light, the other LED thing? I don't know. It feels like there are a lot of options. And it just seems like I have enough other stuff going on without teaching myself to be an expert in camera lighting. And you can overthink it, right? Like mm-hmm. everything on Amazon these days, I'm looking at um, some other equipment for my podcast and you can read way too many reviews. You're like 80 reviews in and it's like, I still don't know which one to buy. Right. Even the thing, I looked at something the other day that had 7,000 plus reviews and it was like rated at four and a half stars. And the first three reviews were like terrible. Like this is garbage. Don't buy it. I'm like, I don't know. There's (laughs) 7,000 four and a half star reviews. Really? It's not good. And then you just don't buy anything. It's very easy to get stuck in your head. And and even not just with buying something on Amazon, I mean, this whole moment right now where everybody's trying to pivot and it's like, well, what do I do? What do I do? The people who are being the most successful at it are the ones who are just doing, you know, don't overthink, just jump in there. That is not my strong suit by any means. I'm working on training myself to ask forgiveness instead of permission, which is not a pastry chef mindset. You know, I want to follow the rules, but folks are out there and they're just doing stuff and they're being successful. And uh, I I don't know, I guess that's why I'm on your podcast right now, because like, I don't know, let's just do it. Hey. Yeah, that that's totally it. I mean, for me, it was scary. You know, I started this podcast and I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with friends. And then as you kind of work through your friend circle, it's like you start reaching out to bigger name guests. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of scary for me to, you know, especially someone I don't even really know and just shoot them a DM through Instagram, be like, hey, I don't even know if you've ever heard of me or my show or my organization, but you want to come on a podcast. And I've had some really great guests that I was surprised they wanted to come on the show. Yeah. I mean, the worst thing anybody can say is no. Yeah. And that's what I found. I, uh, one of my favorite books is called The Art of Asking. Have you ever heard of that book? I have, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, Amanda gave a great TED Talk. I think it started as like a 15-minute TED Talk, and then she turned it into a book. But that book was really kind of life-changing for me because I still was always in this mindset of, you know, I don't know, I guess it's below me to ask this person for this thing. And I found that once I started asking for things, 99% of the time, it worked out. Yeah. So, why not? So, I'd like to hopefully be able to share that story with people and inspire them to just reach out to that person. So 
what does the summer look like for you then if you're not going to be doing farmers markets like how much have your all of your businesses been impacted by covid like what's changed for you so i'm i'm still with the city of gaithersburg doing both their event planning for regional events and the cooking classes for casey community center so obviously the big regional events were canceled we just celebrated virtual summer fest um, so the workload on that side of things has been very light for me. Uh, on the other hand, the Casey Community Center cooking classes have been, uh, we've been working on getting them online and making that uh, something that we can do over Zoom, which again, when all of this started and we didn't know how long it was going to go on for, and we were sort of thinking, trying to think of ways to keep revenue coming into the city. I was the one saying like, you know, there are so many free content. There's so much free content out there right now. I don't feel good about charging for online cooking classes when there's so much free content. And I just don't think our technical ability is going to be worth paying for. But again, as I've, you know, participated in other people's cooking classes and seen what people are charging 25 35 $55 for online and people for, people are paying for it. These classes are selling out. So now we're sitting in Gaithersburg saying, well, why can't we do that too, I guess? Let's get this going. So I've been working a lot on uh, getting those contracts in order. There's all sorts of fun contracts when you're working in uh, local government. This is my first government job. I've never done it before. And I'm finding out all sorts of fun things. So it's mostly been figuring out contracts, insurance requirements. Uh, how are we going to make sure that the instructors have the proper technology that they need to lead the class? Um, so that's been a big part of my day job is getting that up and running. And then my side hustle, Black Bunny Bakery, is mostly just figuring out, um, am I going to be doing cooking classes myself online? You know, the, the Gaithersburg thing, I'm contracting other instructors. Occasionally, I'll teach classes too, just to help fill out the schedule. But as part of my side hustle, I need to figure this out for myself as well. So I've been spending a lot of time hunched over my laptop, editing videos, and trying to learn about how to make compelling content that uh, educates people. I don't think I would feel good about it if it didn't really teach people a little something about cooking. For me, it was finding where my time was best spent because everyone says, oh, you should be making cooking videos. And mm -hmm. like you, I kind of said, there's a million people out there making cooking videos and are people going to pay for that? And even if they do, what's your time worth? Is it worth having 20 people come and pay you $10? Like how much are people going to pay to watch me do a Zoom cooking class where I'm not mm -hmm. even giving them the food? I don't know. So then I did a couple free ones, hoping there would be good lead gen type stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not. I mean, <laughs> you, you never know. It might work out. But I had this <laughs> private session set and I thought 20 people were going to show up and 10 showed. And of the 10, half of them didn't even have their camera on and kept it on mute. And, yeah. you know, I'm saying, okay, so, you know, what do you think of this? What, what do you want to do with that? And you have like one person maybe answering. And then nobody ever emailed me. Nobody mm. followed any of my social media pages. And it was just like, okay, I spent, you know, an hour, it's not a lot of time to waste, but yeah. I don't want to keep doing that. I would rather spend an hour talking to people like you and having mm -hmm. a good podcast. I think that's going to benefit me more than doing a private class for people who aren't even engaged. Mm -hmm. I sometimes think if people aren't paying, they're not invested. 
You know, I've heard that through a number of business things that, you know, if it's free, what's the motivation to join? So Hmm. um, I've paid for some classes this summer and I took them because I paid money. I felt like I wanted to get my money's worth, you know? Yeah. And I think there's also a question of what market you're trying to reach. I mean, your Chefs Without Restaurants group is all geared towards professional chefs. I mean, and yet you're, you're, catering business. Uh, what is it? A little bite? Perfect little bites. Perfect little bites. Yes. So you have customer facing business on one side and you have basically a B2B business on the other side. And how do you decide where to spend your time and, and where to prioritize? That's a very good question. I ask myself that every day <laughs> you know, as, as I sit and do a podcast and spend all the time interviewing, editing and all that, that doesn't make me any money right now. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the group is free. I don't charge for leads. No revenue is coming in. It's costing me money. Should I spend that time doing something for my perfect little bites business? Is an hour or two or three better spent doing a marketing video that's going to reach them? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's kind of where I am right now is trying to figure out where I want to go with the organization and if there's an opportunity to monetize it, which I do think there is definitely. And there's some things I'm working on, but like, how do I allocate my time when I'm still one person right now? Right. And, and not just how to allocate your time to maximize your, your revenue potential. I mean, allocate your time to spend it doing the things that you love doing and, and be with the people that you want to be with. I mean, I left my job at the gourmet distributor rather abruptly. I was laid off completely unexpectedly and it was a huge wake-up call. I, I had thought to myself, like, okay, I've got this nice little desk job, and the money is good, and, you know, the schedule's okay for my family, so, like, this is fine for now. I wasn't really happy, but, I mean, I did it because that's what I thought I was supposed to be spending my time doing, but it was really a wake-up call of, like, oh, work doesn't love me and they don't care if I'm there or not. So why would I sacrifice my time with my family or my time on earth to do something that just, I was doing it for the money, but like, what's that worth even? So now I just focus on trying to spend my time doing what I want to do. And I love being at the farmer's markets. I love talking to the customers there. I really enjoy getting up early on a Saturday morning and popping up my little tent and talking about chocolate chip cookies. I, I just enjoy that so much. And it, it pains me that it hasn't turned into big business necessarily. It's not a money-making enterprise. So as much as I've had all this training and experience, I hate to think that it's essentially a hobby for me right now. But it, I mean, it is, but I'm enjoying my time. I'm doing what I like to do. That's the big thing I've seen. And I, I think you see it a little more with the sweet side of things. You know, people, there's so many people who have cupcake businesses, cookie businesses, things of that nature. And how many of them are doing that full time? I mean, as a personal chef, I'm not making a ton of money, but I'm doing okay selling dinners, but I'm in the, you know, $100 a person range. You got to sell a lot of cookies and cupcakes and loaves of bread to make that kind of money. And, you know, that's why I'm trying to get people you know, guests on the show, some have said it because I think nobody wants to talk about that on the air. What we're in is this world of you want to put to your customers that you're a successful business owner. So no one wants to come on the show and say, well, this is really just a side job. I can't survive off of that. So you see a lot of posturing on Instagram and Facebook and 
then I think it perpetuates this thing where you have a lot of people saying, oh, I'm going to quit my job as a banker to, mm-hmm. to have a cupcake business. It's like, well, you need to talk to some of those people because I don't know any of them who are doing it full time. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are working a 40 hour week doing something that pays the bills and just doing this as a hobby. And they're probably never going to get it off the ground. And I hate to say that, but I think that's the reality. And some people need to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so impressed by small business owners, food businesses specifically, where they've really found a way to make it work. Just knowing how slim the margins are and how you have to put every fiber of your being into it. And it takes years to get it going. And, and I mean, I, I'm doing it. I'm doing it when I can, but I'm not making it the biggest thing in my world. And that's okay too, right? You know, I mean, sometimes you have to have that thing that you just love doing and the extra money is usually nice and maybe it doesn't take off, you know? Yeah. A lot of people start a business doing something that they love and then because the business is so grueling, they end up hating it, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a common story you hear all the time. People say, if you have something that you love, don't turn it into a business, do it as a hobby because it's going to kill you trying to make it your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so tricky. You've really got to thread that needle. And I think that's where, you know, if you ever get to the point to bring on employees, maybe have them do what you don't want to do. You know, that's what I've said all the time as I was working my way up through the food scene. And I was, as I became an executive chef, I wasn't cooking anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was doing all the office stuff. So I leave the job to start my own business cooking, but now it's kind of the same thing. I get to the point where I have all these events and stuff and I really have to spend so much time doing the marketing and answering emails and stuff. So it's not not quite the same, but I'm not cooking all the time either. I'm still 60 to 70% of the time doing office work, marketing, lead gen, and 30% of the time doing cooking. So but at least you're you're reaching people on a larger platform then even if you're not literally cooking the food that you put down in front of them your brand is bringing delicious food to a larger audience and that's a beautiful thing too thanks i'm glad you think of my brand as that i'd like to think <laughs> that as well do you have any other endeavors or anything that's kind of working right now or are you just trying to figure out how to fit into the world we're living in right now don't I have enough endeavors? I mean, <laughs> come on, Chris. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Some, so. people, some people always have uh, a whole bunch of things in the works. I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing out on anything. No, I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of writing lately. Um, before I went to Culinary Institute of America, I was a Terp. I went to University of Maryland and got an English degree, mostly because uh, it was easy for me and I could get in and out and off to culinary school as fast as I could. But I've always sort of had in the back of my mind, like, okay, well, I'll be a food writer someday because I can, so I should. So let me get to that eventually. And now I'm really trying to focus and and get the writing done and uh, get some thoughts down on paper. So um, yeah, the writing, the videos, um, the day job, the kids. That's a lot. It, and, it feels like enough for right now. And the kids for sure. I mean, I have twins who are going to be eight uh, in three weeks. And, oh, wow. You know, yeah, that, that's a lot too. And, you know, with the whole schooling thing, I mean, I just saw yesterday what the proposed plan is for schools for next year. And it looks like the kids aren't going to be going back full time. So that's going to be a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, at best, it looks like the kids are going to be going to school two days a week. Um, so, yeah. you know, someone's going to have to be home trying to 
help them with the distance learning while Mm -hmm. having, you know, two working from home adults, which gets to be tough. Yeah, I I haven't had a chance to read Deb Perlman's New York Times article yet. Did you see that about having kids at home as working with working parents? Yeah, I've seen that floating around, but I haven't had the time to read it yet. But it shows up, seems like every half hour in my Facebook feed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that everybody has on their mind, everybody's thinking about. And again, it just goes back to like, okay, how do I actually want to spend my time? My children need me right now. I, I want to be there for my children, but I also don't want to die inside because I can't do the work that I've been working on all these years. But it is the benefit of having your own business because if I was working a job um, you know, my last job was in contract food with Sodexo and I was working mm. in a retirement community. They're essential workers. They yeah. have had zero days off. I still have a lot of colleagues working at the place that I left and they there was no one week off, one month off. Like they were at it even more than they were before because when you're the manager there, that's on you. You got to be here. You're serving 1,500 meals a day or something like that. So I wouldn't have been home. We, I have no idea what our home life would have looked like if I still had a job and had to um, take care of my kids. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, I mean, it's definitely a good time to be a chef without a restaurant, without that brick and mortar building to worry about. Or, I mean, probably a lot of the people that follow you don't have that much staff that they need to worry about. So it it has been a relief to just not have to think about all of that laundry list of things that need to be dealt with. From a pastry perspective, I was reading the other day some article about, you know, is this going to be it for pastry chefs who work full time? You know, that restaurants are, as they're looking at staff and cutting staff, I think always pastry chefs have had to kind of pick up maybe the garmage station or help out with this and that. And they weren't just doing pastry. And, and, you know, the article kind of says with what we're going through now, you know, are people are people ordering dessert to go? How often are people doing that? And what's the the role of the pastry chef going forward? And is that something that's going to be in danger? Have you thought about that? I mean, I know you don't work in a restaurant, but have you seen any of those articles or had thoughts on that? I haven't seen those articles. It sounds really interesting though. I've really been intrigued by the articles that have the point of view of let it burn. Who wants to go back to normal? That wasn't really working for a lot of people. So maybe there do need to be major systemic changes. And if that means eliminating the pastry chef position. I mean, I guess that's one way to do it. But, you know, there are specialists. And I've always enjoyed being a specialist. I specialized in pastry and then specifically in chocolate. And I think that it brings me a lot of satisfaction to be an expert in certain areas. But probably in the economy that's coming up, we're going to see a lot more generalists. So if you feel as a savory chef that you can make a dessert that you feel good about being the finale of your meal, well, then, I mean, that's what you're going to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, I haven't taken dessert. We've done a lot of takeout and I haven't gotten dessert any of those times. I don't know. In my mind, a lot of that stuff doesn't hold up really well. I'm always thinking of like a lot of the desserts I do, like how do you put a panna cotta in a to-go? How do you do some kind of mousse? I'm thinking of like melting ice creams and whipped creams and all these things that tend to be very delicate and not translating well. And I just kind of look at dessert menus and think none of that stuff's really going to hold up for me to take it out. And I guess maybe that's an opportunity for pastry chefs and restaurants. I mean, you know, when you do things like 
what you do, your stuff is very shelf stable that you would take to a market. It might not be an intricate plated dessert, but um, delicious, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that that is the thing. It's an opportunity for people to go back to basics a little bit. You can't really send a creme brulee home with someone unless you do it in the little tin, and but you torch it, and then it's going to be liquefied again by the time they get it home. It, it doesn't travel. So it is a good time to uh, give people those comforting treats. You know, instead of doing a beautiful plate of dessert, they could be packaging cookies or, you know, a beautiful little biscotti to send home with people and, and just find, find those treats that are going to be comforting and travel well. Making my caramel corn yesterday, I was thinking I should start a cottage caramel corn shop out of my house, but that sounds like a, that sounds like a lot of work. That's not allowable under cottage food law, actually, unfortunately. Why is that not covered? There's no potentially hazardous food. Is it because of the caramel? I know, man. It's the caramel. No caramel allowed. Really? I had no idea because that's a cooked product. It's no different, in my opinion, than a cake. I mean, you put eggs and, you know, dairy into a cake and then you bake it. You can't do caramel under cottage bakery? I don't think caramel is allowed. I oh don't believe goodness. so. I know it's really limiting, which is actually why I wanted to get into a commercial kitchen this year and sort of open up the whole laundry list of things I wasn't allowed to make before. But um, And it's also really limiting that you have to prepackage everything with your sticker on it. So I spend like 40 cents on packaging for each unit that I sell. It's the bag and two stickers. And of course, then I'm also thinking like, okay, well, all of that plastic that's going into the world, you know? So I've ponied up the cash for the compostable bags, you know? So at, at least there's that. Is anybody composting these bags? No, of course not. But I feel better about spending my money on that. So there's all sorts of fun um, rules that the cottage food bakers have to follow. And they're supposedly the same for the whole state of Maryland, but I know for a fact that it varies county to county because it's enforced on the county level. And I just had a conversation with someone about this right before the show because we're looking at some of the things going on in Frederick County. And it's just, I don't know, kind of ridiculous, but who... Who makes these changes and who's accountable to who? I mean, if I see you doing something in your county and I want to do it here and they tell me it's not allowed, what's the appeal process for that? There isn't really one. You just say, okay, I guess I can't do that. And then you're done with it. And and honestly, I've never seen enforcement of any kind. I have been so careful to package everything appropriately and follow all of the rules and spending money on this. And other people are just sort of out there like, yeah, I don't know. I made this at my house. What's the big deal? And, and, nobody's enforcing it in Montgomery County as far as I can tell. And that's frustrating. Well, I'm seeing a lot of that on the savory side. You know, I'm someone who's always said, do it the right way, find out what the regs are, contact Department of Health. And there's so many people out there right now. I get it. Times are tough and you need money. But there's people on Facebook like, I made these pupusas. Here's my address. Come pick them up. Like, I don't know. Like, I go to do an event and the Board of Health, like, I talk to them and they won't sign off on a permit for something. And then you got people selling these, you know, whatever, shrimp scampi dishes out of their house for $25 a head. And right now, enforcement's light. And, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like a hater, but it's kind of like there's a lot of people out there who are doing things the right way, who are pulling permits, who are paying for all that stuff for their licensing. You know, I have an LLC, I have liability insurance, I have ServeSafe. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I should just be selling pizzas out of my front door. Yeah, it it can be really frustrating. And especially, 
I mean, pastry chef, I want to follow the rules. I want to do it right. I want to be a legitimate business. I'm not just some random person who thought she could bake cupcakes. I, I also have the insurance and the serve safe and the Culinary Institute of America for crying out loud. But you just see roadblock after roadblock. And it's like, I'm trying to do this the right way. And you're making me feel like I should just be ignoring all of these rules. I actually, I tried to launch um, retail business at the end of last year, they said that cottage food vendors could sell in retail locations. So I thought, oh, that's amazing. I started going out to wine shops and um, little boutiques like that, where a little six pack bag of cookies could potentially be sold for $4 because it's a nice little stocking stuffer treat to go with your wine purchase. So I went through doing all of that. I got a few orders, really excited, ordered my stickers and everything, submitted all of my paperwork to the health department. And they said, oh, no, no, no. You can only sell at grocery stores. Grocery stores? Nobody is going to buy six cookies for $4 in a grocery store. What am I supposed to do with that? And it uh, it just felt like there, there hadn't been that information anywhere <laughs> So I felt like the rug was pulled out from under me. I'd spent all that time preparing for nothing, basically. Yeah, I've had that too. I planned a pop-up event a couple of years ago and we did advertising. It was actually the front page in the Frederick News Post advertising it. And then I went to get my permit and was told, um, you're not really allowed to do this. I know we saw it on the front page of the FNP, but we don't want to give you a permit. It's like, what? Like, I, like, I've done this before. I Like, in an office that I've come in and pulled permits all the time for one-time events because they can willy-nilly pick which events they want to sign off on and which they don't. So it's okay for me to go do an event at the library or go do a, an event for the Chamber of Commerce and do this and that, and they'll sign on the permit. And then now I've sold tickets for a dinner and I go to get a permit and they say, eh, no, we don't consider that an event. We don't want to give you the permit. It's like So what did you do? Well, the event actually ended up getting canceled because of snow. So it ended up becoming a non-issue there at that time. But that's something we're talking about now is because with um, savory chefs and events, they don't want to see food events that aren't tied into what they consider an event. So you can pull a permit and say, I want to go to this brewery because it's their five-year anniversary. Can I have a permit? And they'll say, sure. But then you go and say, I want to go do a pop-up at the same brewery because they're doing a beer release. They'll say, well, that's not an event. And they won't give you the permit. Oh my gosh. And they get to decide what it is. So they say you can pull permits in conjunction with events, but then they get to decide what an event is. That's crazy. It it is crazy. So you don't ever know if you're going to be able to do these things, which is why I've shied away from doing public events because it's a pain. You know, but you have to go and almost like beg them to give you permission to do this event. But why do they get to decide? You know, what's Mm -hmm. not to say that this beer release isn't an event? And, you know, now with everyone needing jobs and money and stuff, so many people have said, well, why don't you come and do, you know, a pop-up at our place? It's like, because if there's not an event, you know, if it was like a 4th of July uh, cookout, that's an event. But if it's just like the 5th of July that's not an event and they're not going to sign off on that. So it's really, really hard, especially here in Frederick County. And they'll tell you that that follows Comar and it's the same for the whole state. But I've talked to people in almost every county and I know that that's not enforced across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So frustrating. Yeah. Which is again, why like I want to make sure that I put that out there and tell people because I think most people don't know that. And their response will say, have you read Comar? Have 
I don't know, have you read Comar? Like Comar is like a 200 page document and it's written basically for, for lawyers, you know, and there's like one thing in there and it says, you know, in conjunction with events. But Mm. again, that's up to interpretation. So whoever's working the desk that particular day, I guess, gets to be the person who interprets it. Yeah, but we're doing some, you know, that's where Chefs Without Restaurants, I want to build a community where we can have some advocacy. And that was an area that I hadn't expected when I started this organization. So do you have anything you want to share with our listeners before we get out of here today? Well, I mean, I've got some big changes coming up on my Instagram account. So I would love for folks to follow me on Instagram. I'm at Black Bunny Treats. Black Bunny Bakery was taken. Don't look for me there. It's at Black Bunny Treats. So I'm going to be announcing some big changes and events coming up in the not so distant future. And uh, I'm on Facebook at the same spot, Black Bunny Treats. And I don't know, come come see me in Gaithersburg whenever the city of Gaithersburg opens up again. We would love to have more chefs submit proposals for cooking classes, whether they're virtual cooking classes or in person once we start doing that again. We're always looking for more qualified, talented chefs who are serve safe certified and insured. You don't need those things for the virtual cooking classes, but uh, you know, a lot of people think that they're qualified to teach cooking classes, but it's really important to me to get real chefs in their teaching. I love Gaithersburg because it's right smack in between DC and Frederick, two great food towns. And there's so much potential there right now. People in Gaithersburg want good food and they're just sort of like, oh, where do I go? What do I do? It's easier to get into Frederick than get into DC. It is, yes. (laughs) But geographically, we're right in between. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. You're kind of commuting if you want to go into Frederick for dinner. Going up 270 isn't fantastic either at night. It it all depends on the timing. But there there are so many great uh, restaurants in Gaithersburg. But... I think that there's a lot of uh, room for development in terms of culinary education. We had L'Academy de Cuisine very sadly close a couple of years ago. So I think that's sort of left a vacuum for culinary education. And since I came on with Casey Community Center last year, I've really been trying to make it a destination for top tier culinary education. They had the classes priced like hilariously low. They were like $25 per person. So I was frantically trying to recruit chefs to teach them. And it was like a blast from the past. I was just on the phone with chefs lecturing me about how I don't understand food costs. And it's like, oh gosh, I haven't missed this at all. But now we've gotten that price point up a little bit. We can afford to pay our chefs what they're worth and still provide uh relatively low cost, high quality recreational culinary education in Gaithersburg. So that's super exciting. I look forward to that and I'll share all the links in the show notes and I always update them as well. So even two months down the road, if something changes and you want me to drop something in there, I'll put them in for everyone because people continue to listen to the shows. I'm amazed that episodes from like three months ago still get listens. So What else? Anything else? I like to do like a little speed round at the end of the show. And I've kind of changed it up uh, every episode. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't. So I thought I'd throw a couple of questions out at you if you think you can handle our somewhat speed round. I don't know. Let's see. Do you have any favorite culinary resources, whether it be for pastry, for savory, for building a business like books, websites, people to follow on social media? Where would you point some of our listeners to? 
So definitely that Convert Me website is huge when I'm trying to write or adjust a recipe. That's a big one for me. Um, and honestly, I go to kingarthurflower.com for a lot of recipes they, because they have those easy conversion tools and the recipes are tested. You can't go to Pinterest for recipes. Who does that? Nobody does that. But the, the recipes at King Arthur are really great and reliable. The focaccia that I've been making during quarantine was based on their base recipe. I used it and just swapped out the liquid. So my kimchi focaccia, I, it was just like, okay, how much water is in this? And then I just took half of the water and replaced it with like drained kimchi juice. But it was essentially their recipe because mm -hmm. I trusted that it was going to be pretty solid. They had some really great recipes on their website. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Kimchi, oof. So as someone who's into desserts, do you have a favorite place in the DC area to get something? Is there a restaurant that does really great desserts or a little bakery? What are some places people should check out? So for restaurants, my favorite has got to be La Diplomat. It's old school, so simple. I mean, it's just regular creme brulee on the plate, but oh my gosh, there's a reason that creme brulee got as popular as it did. It's amazing. So that's definitely it for restaurants. And then Bread First uh, in Van Ness, I think is just the most gorgeous bakery. Every time I go in there, I want to work there. I spend a small fortune every time I'm in there and they just have the most amazing breads and pastries. The cannelay are just coming back now. They're giving me life. So I've got to run down into DC and get some of those. So I think that's all I've got for you. If um, you have anything else you want to go over? We all just need to keep pushing forward and, and getting to the next phase of what's going to be a glorious future, I'm sure. Yes. The back half of 2020 will be glorious, right? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Oh boy, there is not a lot to look forward to in 2020 right now, but that's okay. We're going to yeah. make it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And as always, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. You can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and.org and on all social media channels. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.